Today is, is Palm Sunday. If you didn't know it was Palm Sunday and you're uh, new to church, we're going to get to that. But Palm Sunday is always the Sunday that precedes and comes right before Easter. Um, talking about uh, how Jesus would enter the city, um, which we're going to learn about, and how palms would be used in that, in that um, entering. And how, you know, over the course of 1,500 to 2,000 years, it's become known as Palm Sunday. If you're, on the other hand, and you've been in Sunday school, you know, since Moses was in Sunday school... And you're like, why didn't we get a palm branch? Like, we're, we're going to get to that, I promise. One, we got a slim staff, okay? So I'm not going to cut a bunch of palm branches and give them to you so you can throw it away later, okay? We do that with our kids' artwork, all right? Uh, and second, it's actually the thing in Matthew's gospel that makes Jesus weep. So we kind of have to ask ourselves the question, how did, how did palms get adopted on this day to be such a, such a famous Christian tradition, Palm Sunday? Just like a show of hands, have you heard of Palm Sunday? Anybody? Anybody not heard of Palm Sunday? Be brave. Be brave. That's what I'm talking about. All right. We got, we got one. Uh, it's not actually in the Bible. It's, a, it's, a, it's an account um, called, called what? Palm Sunday is called actually what in the Bible? Does anybody know? The triumphal entrance. The triumphal entrance where Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last week of his life. It has become known in our, in our calendar as Holy Week, hence the purple sash on the cross. We are not just Fletcher Senators fans. This is the beginning of Holy Week. This is the first Sunday in Holy Week. But on this week, on Holy Week, uh, it's so important that 29 out of 89 chapters of all gospel literature is written about this one week of Jesus' life. This one week, a third of all of the gospel writers include the last week of his life. So you kind of have to ask yourself, is this not kind of an important thing to talk about? Jesus lived 33 years on the earth, and a third of all accounts of him are going to be written about this Week. So this is a big deal, right? Today is a big deal. Look at your neighbor and just say, today's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Let me ask you this also. I think about this often, but if the God of heaven and earth truly did put on skin and come down in the form of Jesus, Jesus, the, the, the everlasting from everlasting, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, if he put on skin, the very logos of God, Meaning that when God said, let there be light, Jesus went into the darkness and he pulled out light. He is the manifestation of God's word. If he put on skin and came to earth, do you not think that everything that he does and did would be probably intentional, right? He would have a purpose in doing some things. Yet so often we read the Bible and we say, man, so Jesus entered uh, Jerusalem on a donkey. All right, cool. Next. It's like, man, there is so much to that. What? And that's what I want to talk about today. So go ahead and open your Bible, if you have one, to John chapter 11. We're, we're going to back up a little bit in the story because I think it's important to get a little bit of context. Get your phone out with a Bible. Get your actual Bible out. Uh, I want you to open the Bible. I want us to be people of the text this morning. Okay, can we do that? You have permission to open your phone in church. You're not going to get zapped with lightning. And if you do, it's probably for something else anyway. John chapter 11. Let me just pray as we read God's word together. God, I just pray the words of Paul, that our hearts would be enlightened, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would speak to us this morning as we open a familiar passage. I pray for fresh eyes, fresh understanding. I pray that we would see your purpose in it. I pray, God, that we would see your intention in it and that your Holy Spirit would lead us to your truth in it, God. Jesus, let the words of my mouth and let the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight this morning. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for the work you're already doing in this place and just ask you to continue that. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So here we go. We're going to jump into uh, John chapter 11. I'm a little bit back from the triumphal entrance. So I'm going to be reading in the NIV, John chapter 11, verse 55. 
All right? If you're ready, say ready. If you're not, say hold up. Are we ready? Did anyone say hold up? I'm sorry. Okay, good. Verse 55, it says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up uh, from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. That means they're not good friends with Jesus, right? So let's get a lay of the land here just real quick. So in this account, Passover is approaching, okay? And Passover is one of the biggest Jewish holidays and festivals on the calendar, celebrating uh, how, how years and years prior God had, had, had done what? He had released his people from slavery from the Egyptians, right? And they, and they celebrate this every year with Passover. Remember, the angel of death would pass over the house, houses of those who had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their, of their homes, and God would pass over them and not, and not take their firstborn. It's, it's, it is a beautiful picture of the gospel, and it has, even to date, become the, 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 the biggest pilgrimage event in Jerusalem, and it was at this time as well. It is Passover. Millions of Jews would ascend, because you're always ascending to Jerusalem, to God's holy uh, mount. They would ascend to Jerusalem for this festival. It's kind of like 4th of July on 1st Street, but add like maybe 500,000 more people. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's crazy. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's, it's bigger than that one time. We were talking about this last night, me and James were. Uh, it's bigger than that one time the Jags played the Titans and absolutely destroyed them. And Everbank, no, no, oh gosh, Everbank. Rest in peace, Everbank. <laughs> TIAA Bank Field was just a madhouse, right? Pa- Passover was a big deal. It was a big deal. And they all came to Jerusalem um, as like this pilgrimage event. And they're all asking each other, where is Jesus? Where is this rabbi who's been teaching in the temple courts for the last three years, and he's got the 12 uh, disciples who are all ragtag, you know, group of disciples. Some are fishermen, some are tax collectors. Where is this guy? He had kind of garnered a following, right? And I think so, so often we, we, were, we were taught maybe growing up that, man, the, the, the Jewish people, they just didn't get it. Jesus came, and they totally missed it. And I would say, man, chapter 11 might, might actually say otherwise. There are people who want him to come to Passover, because I think some people are starting to realize there's something different about this Jesus. And there are people who are uh, following him. But Jerusalem was such a tense you know, place politically, which you know, we know nothing about that. That's great. We'll just you know, move on from that one. It was such a tense um, 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 setting uh, because, because Rome, you know, remember the Roman Empire spread from Spain to India at one point. I mean, it's vast empire. Rome would, you know, would, would, would have, uh, they would occupy Jerusalem But you got a bunch of Jews there who would never bow their knee to Rome because their God was who? The God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It wasn't Caesar or any emperor they could put in place. They wouldn't bow their knee to Rome. So what happened during Passover, when they're celebrating their freedom from slavery, is Rome said, okay, over the years, okay, sure, you're getting a little bit, you're getting, there's some angst here of "Mm, one time God delivered us from slavery. And here we are oppressed by the Roman Empire again. So Rome would do this. Rome, from the west, there was a, from the west, sorry, this way, (laughs) yeah, the beach. Okay, got it. From the west, my bad, uh, Herod built this grand uh, uh, castle of sorts, right, Herodium. And and a lot of the, the Roman officials would stay there. They would bring Pontius Pilate through the city coming from the west on a white stallion. He would have hundreds of, of, of Roman soldiers surrounding him. He would come through the city with great pomp and strength. And um, um, it was almost like a flex. It was like a don't get any ideas about this 
festival that you have about celebrating your freedom from oppression and slavery, don't get any, don't, that, that happened in Egypt, but it will not happen in Rome, right? God may have delivered you from Egypt, but he will never deliver you from Rome. Rome was the superpower at the time. So it was riddled with this tension of, man, we want to celebrate our freedom and how God delivered us, but we're living currently in an oppressive regime, Rome, and to make matters worse, they rub it in our face on the biggest day of the year for us. Pretty tense, right? We've got to lay of the land. Can we move on to chapter 12? Here we go. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, verse 9, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came out. Not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, which is just a few chapters earlier if you go back. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were coming over to Jesus and believing in him. This is the same ending to the previous scripture where it says the chief priests wanted to kill either Lazarus or Jesus or both or arrest him because they're not really keen on what he's doing. You got that? They're not really big fans of Jesus. Um, and here we learn that Jesus is in Bethany, which he had been before. It's about 10 kilometers east, nailed that one, east of Jerusalem, okay? So we've, got, we've, got, we've already got this, like, this irony of Pilate from, the, from what, the west and Jesus from the east. Jesus is in the east of Jerusalem. 10 kilometers east, which for a, for a devout triathlon like myself, maybe takes 45 minutes to run. Maybe an hour for you. Maybe an hour, give or take. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Might as well. But in John's account, Jesus is back with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He's with his friends. These are, these are friends of his, right? Remember the account uh, of Mary and Martha and, and, and how Jesus sees uh, Mary's heart and it's pure and, de- and, and devoted and worshipful. You know what I'm talking about? Remember that account? Cool. If not, Maybe another sermon. Here we go. Um, now, what we see here in Bethany is, is Mary pours out an expensive, what, what, what the Bible says is nard. Some, some translations say perfume. Um, but, but, but it's actually something very specific. Spike nard would, would, would be a, more of a balm. And she had an entire pint of it, and she breaks it open, and she pours it at Jesus' feet. Now, it's so rare, and it's so expensive, and it's worth a year's wages because you couldn't even get nard in Jerusalem. It was, it was sourced like over in India, like, like you know, I think above 30, you know, 3,000 feet or something like that. And, um, and Mary would essentially have this, this jar, this pint of pure nard that would be her retirement. It would be her wage. It would be her future. It would be a year of security. It would be, it, it, it would be an appreciating asset that she could use for the years to come, right? And essentially, when you have nard, you only use like a dime size uh, to anoint whatever you're going to anoint and... and 
the smell, the fragrance stays on your skin for four to seven days at times. And yet we see this picture, this beautiful picture of worship and of, of, of extravagant devotion of Mary, who's saying, this is the most valuable thing that I possess, and I'm going to pour it at the feet of Jesus. She broke it open, and she poured it at the feet of Jesus. And the religious spirit in the room, Judas, will always contest extravagant worship and devotion. It always will. But, but, but Mary had found the one thing that meant everything to her, had she not? And she pours it, and... and, and and it wasn't just like a screw top. It had to be broken. She broke it open. There was no collecting this back after, after she poured it at Jesus' feet. You know, extravagant devotion, extravagant worship. It's, it's, it's something that, how do I say, it's, it's contagious, right? When, when, when my wife and I were preparing to go to Costa Rica, we, we were supposed to serve for about five years down there, and then COVID happened. And I mean, COVID was an earthquake in everyone's life, so certainly we're not the only ones. But we were down there. And, and, and actually had to come back, which, was, which is a crazy story. But um, in preparation to go, we, w- we were raising our own support, and, and we had stopped working, you know, actual jobs. And we, we said, man, we're going uh, to raise the money to go down there and work for a church down there. And, and it would be our, our, our goal to raise kids down there. And, you know, we would have all these meetings, and people say, man, what, what are you going to do about, like, a 401K? What are you going to do about, like, um, a, a, a retirement plan for once you're older? How are you going to send your kids to college? How are you going to afford a car? How are you going to, uh, are, you going to ha- are you going to send your kids to school in Costa Rica? They speak Spanish. Like, did you know that? They speak Spanish there. You're going to have to pay for private school, right? Actually, I kind of skipped ahead. People would always ask us this one question. What are you going to do with your kids? I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, unless you take them, we're going to take them with us. People are born there every day. We're not moving to Angola or like, you know, rural Madagascar. Like we're, we're moving to Costa Rica. Like it's all good. But our response often was something very similar to Mary's. We're like, man, Jesus is worth everything that we are and everything that we have. And if he's called us to do something and he's urging us to do something, do you not think that the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills will not provide for anything that he's calling you to do? Right? And that, and that should speak to you in this situation as well. Is he not worth everything that you have? He either is or he isn't, right? And if he's not Lord of all, I would, I would speculate that maybe he's not Lord at, at all to you, right? Are you going to take your kids? Man, I wish they could keep, anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, but it kind of begs the question, back to Mary. Jesus was worth it all. But who gets anointed in the Bible? Does anybody know who gets anointed in the Bible? Kings and nobles get anointed, which maybe I saved the subject until this moment a few minutes in, but today we're talking about how Jesus is king. Only Jesus is king. And yet he's not anointed by anyone rich. He's not anointed by anyone who, who owns much. He's not anointed with great crowds. He's not anointed with great witness. He's anointed by a poor woman with a pint of pure spikenard. And we see Jesus enter in the city as rightful king of Israel but not the way you would think. He didn't get a procession. He didn't get guards. He didn't get a white stallion. He got Mary pouring oil on his feet. Let's keep reading before we jump too far ahead because I think I already spoiled that he's going to enter the city at some point, which you should have already known, okay? Verse 12 says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Remember, they're all waiting for him. They're all waiting for him. 
They're expectant that Jesus is coming, right? They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Verse 14 says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, for as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Mm. Riding in the city on a donkey. Here comes Jesus. Here comes the guy that everyone was waiting for, or at least a great number of them. And some for different reasons. Some wanted to arrest him and kill him, and some wanted to worship him, right? Um, but remember, it was Passover, okay? Don't, don't let that be lost on you. Um, and, and on this specific day of Passover, we have great reason to believe that it was also Lamb Selection Day, which is just an, a, a, like, remember back to the whole intention thing. I, I, don't, I don't think that's any small detail that Jesus would enter Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day on Passover and also on the same day that Pilate would ride through the city on his white stallion. Jesus would ride through the other direction on his lamb, gentle and lowly and humble. He's being intentional with every single move he makes in this story. Trying to, I think, shout with his actions like, behold, I am the lamb. Just like John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what, are the, what, like, what is the people's response? It's Hosanna. It's Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And if it would have stopped there, this would be an entirely different account. But what happens next is what truly, I think, changes and how maybe years later we hear common sermons about Palm Sundays about missing the point or Palm Sundays about how the people made it all about themselves. There's a lot of popular sermons out there kind of hating on the people who are at this festival waiting for Jesus. And I'm not saying they're wrong. And we're going to get to that in one minute about palm branches. But, but, but think back for just one second. Jesus is entering the city, and there's so much expectation around it, okay? He's coming from Bethany. He enters the city over the Mount of Olives. And I believe, you know, the, 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 the city gates are about a mile outside of Jerusalem. Do, do I think Jesus sat on the donkey and rode the whole way? I don't, I don't think so. I think he sat on the donkey. He fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 9, which is all about restoration and salvation and God fighting for Israel's behalf. I think he gets on the donkey, I think he proves his point, and I think he walks into the city. And I think as he's walking into the city, I think the people who had lost hope and the people who were expecting him to come, I don't, I don't think they see him first. I think they hear commotion. I think they hear like, oh, or see a bunch of people who are gathering. But you know what I, I think? I think they smell him. Because he had been anointed in chapter 11. And I think they smell Jesus coming, their rightful king. Because remember, I think some people had kind of figured this out. I don't think every Jewish person in the Bible missed the point. I think some of them saw it, but I think when he came, I think they smelled him. And they smelled the spikenard that Mary would have poured at his feet as her rightful king. And as he came in the city, he would later die a week later, I believe still smell, smelling of the perfume that she anointed him with. And what would the sign read over his head? It would read, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, king of the Jews. And I don't think, I don't think everyone knew, I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't think everyone knew what was, how, like how everything was going to end. But I think when he was coming in, I think there were some people who goes, this is our rightful king. When they're saying, Hosanna, God save us, God bless us, God grant us favor. That's what Hosanna means. What happens next is what's so tragic is they grab palm branches. 
which a palm branch is no small thing. A palm branch at some point in the Roman Empire, we don't know exactly when, actually became illegal to wave a palm branch in the Roman Empire. It became illegal, especially in Jerusalem. And that's because it was, it was primarily tied to a political party known as the Zealots. Can you say that with me? The Zealots. The Zealots. The Zealots. There you go. Yeah, four people, whatever. They would be people of great zeal. See where the name came from? Great zeal. Their, their, their political party arose at some point during the vast expanse of, 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 of Hellenism in the first century. And their response to, to this growing movement of, of medicine and art and, and, and um, sports and education, their response as Jewish people would be, we can't let anything threaten the God of the Bible, so we're going to have to be God's warriors. And we're going to have to fight back against culture. So they kind of garnered this reputation of great, like, man, great, great, great violence. They would, they would kill many people. In fact, one story uh, talks about how a, a, a Roman centurion, so, a, so, a, so a group of 100 soldiers, were coming to a zealot uh, village at one point. And, and, and when the zealots couldn't kill every single one of the Romans, instead of, instead of dying um, at the hands of the Romans, they hated Rome so much that they jumped off the cliff on the other side. They were, they were zealous for being warriors for God. They, they fought so valiantly for Jesus. And yet as Jesus enters the city and there's this crowd of people who recognize him as king, there's a whole other group of people who, grow up, who, who grab palm branches. They clutch the palm branch. They put it down and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why? I believe they do that because they recognize that when Jesus gets on a donkey and fulfills the prophecy from Zechariah 9, which I wish I had, I, I had more time to go into, it talks, about, it talks about salvation and the restoration of Israel and God restoring his people, God taking the chariots from the enemies and God giving uh, favor and immense success uh, to, to, to the Jewish people. I think they see that and they think, here comes our warrior king. Here comes someone who's going to fight for us. And I believe if we could have just asked Jesus, what's going through your head on this moment? Because we see in, 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 in Matthew's account, which we didn't read from today, in Matthew's account, Jesus weeps when he sees the palm branches. And I believe if we were to ask Jesus, what, what, what is going through your head in this moment? He would say, I think so many people want me to come here and wage war with an enemy that they can see. But I'm not here to wage war with Rome. I'm here to wage war with hell. Because I can, I, can, I can defeat Rome with a snap of my fingers. But I'd have to come back in a few years to release you from the grips of sin and death and eternal conscious torment away from God. He didn't come to wage war with Rome, but with the enemy himself. And so often we are the zealots. As, as hard as we try not to be. I am guilty of it, and you are guilty of it. We are all collectively guilty of it. I'm not preaching to anyone except myself. We are, are so um, hell-bent on, on, on placing our beliefs onto the king that we try to serve. We, we, we so badly want Jesus to be the king that does for us. Last week, Pastor James talked about how we've lost sort of a sense of awe and wonder and fear, healthy, reverent fear of God. And I believe in this situation, it's kind of similar. Because you're, 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 you're reading in so much of your own preference to the way God should work that I think you kind of miss the way he is working. I wrote this in my notes. I said, Palm Sunday might be a lesson 
and not missing the point, sure. But I think the greater lesson we learn is how we follow a God whose reason and whose choices and whose behaviors and whose character may never fully align with ours, and it's not supposed to. It really shouldn't, to be honest. We follow a Jesus whose plans far supersede our own. If only the zealots would have known the true enemy on that day was not Pontius Pilate riding through on a stallion in a show of force. It wasn't Rome. It wasn't anyone who would come after. The true enemy, the true enemy, the one who is going after your soul, not just your body, is the enemy himself. But we follow a Jesus whose plans supersede our own. We follow a Messiah who comes not to conquer, but to die. Does that not just totally flip everything on its head? He comes to eat with the sinners and make friends with the tax collectors. He goes out of his way to challenge the patriarchal system of the time, and he intentionally, throughout the Gospels, loves and serves women. He touches lepers. He gives to the poor. He talks with Samaritans. He is not what we thought he would be. He is not who they thought he would be. And while we clutch our palm branches waiting for a revolution, because we are, let's be honest, we would love to see our enemies defeated, would we not? Even David writes about it in the Psalms. But while we clutch our palm branches waiting for a revolution, Jesus' life and ministry should instead challenge us to walk in the way that he walked, amen? And how did he walk? It should challenge us to welcome the outsider. It should challenge us to know our neighbors, to eat with the poor, even if it costs you your money and your reputation. You're not that cool anyway. To pray for those who persecute us. That's a, that's a tough one. Jesus should challenge your theology, your comforts, your expectations. He's not a tame God. Remember that quote from, from the Chronicles of Narnia? When the little girl asks, oh, is, is, is Aslan being the God figure? Is he safe? And the response would be, no, he's not safe. But he's good. He's really good. He should, he should challenge the box that you try to put him in. Because he won't fit. It's a Dixie-sized cup with an, o- with an ocean-sized God, right? That's all you got. That's all you got. My, my, my fear as a person in ministry is being so close to the king that I say I serve proximity-wise that I actually end up doing for God rather than knowing God. You know, it's really easy, like, to get up here and sing songs, even if my heart's not in it. And that's dangerous, isn't it? It's really easy to operate out of a gifting that God's given you when really he actually just wants your heart. And I fear it because I'm so close. I could come, I could sing, I could pray, I could counsel, I could smile for the most part, right? I could go to meetings. I get to work with good friends of mine. And I think, I think God's response would be, listen, I, don't, I, don't, I do not care what you do for me. If I don't have you, if I don't have your heart, I don't, I don't want any of it. I don't delight in burnt offerings. Remember when he says that? I don't delight in your empty ritualistic worship. I want your heart. And I believe as we get to know Jesus as king, as Lord, I believe we can start to see him for who he truly is. That hopefully, instead of, instead of this being, being um, a lesson in, oh, the, Jewish, the, the, the Jews screwed the whole thing up. They got the whole thing wrong. Could it be a lesson for us that, man, maybe, maybe I don't know him as well as I thought I did. Maybe, maybe, maybe I don't actually know the Jesus that I claim uh, to follow so wholeheartedly. And maybe it could be an invitation to revisit the Jesus of the Bible because he wants you. He wants you and he wants me. 
I think he is calling us, if I, if I could speculate from this passage, I think he's calling us to drop the palm branches. Quite literally speaking, I think that means drop the politics. I think that means drop the preferences. I think that means drop the things that you've read into Scripture and let's revisit it for who Jesus is. That doesn't mean don't care. Those are two very different things. But only one thing can sit on the throne of your heart, and what's it going to be? Spurgeon said that our hearts are like idol-making factories. That whether or not we can help it, they will constantly create things to sit on the throne of our hearts because there's a God-sized throne on our hearts, and we will put anything there to feel better. You and me both. Like, I went for a run this morning because... I think I'm like halfway addicted to like exercise, partially because I wish you could tell more. I really do. <laughs> it is what it is. I like to eat donuts. Uh, specifically, I like to eat apple fritters. She knows. But I went for a run this morning, and I was just trying to unwind. And, um, I was just praying and thinking, and, and, and I felt like I was on first street. I felt like God so clearly was like, you got up and ran this morning before you even opened the word on the day that you're going to preach the word to the people that you claim to love. I'm like, yeah, I did that. Because on the throne of my heart is my own selfish desires. I mean, you can say ouch or amen, but I'm just saying that's just for me. And I'm the guy up here with a microphone. So, I mean, surely. The Bible says, surely we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And how often do we fall short over and over and over again, failing to realize that the, that the one thing that can satisfy, the one thing that can make us right, the one thing that can give us peace, the one thing that can make us whole is allowing Jesus to sit on the throne of our hearts. That's it. I want to go ahead and invite the, uh, the band up as we close this morning. And I think what I want to do this morning, I thought, I thought a lot about maybe how to close and just thinking through like this story and asking God, man, have I missed it? Like, have I read too much into this thing that we call the word of God about myself? Have I put some unrightful things on the throne of my heart? And the answer was a painful yes. A lot of times it's myself or my job, like I said, even though, even though it is ministry, I still put my job on the throne of my heart thinking um, that maybe it's acceptable because, oh, it's the church, but it's still your job, right? The car you drive, the money you make, the peace you get from your bank account. What have you put on the throne of your heart that is actually solely meant for God? And I believe metaphorically, as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, I believe in a, in a, in a really miraculous way I think he's inviting us to open our hearts so he can, he can enter again. Could we close our eyes this morning just, just for a second? I just want us to reflect for just one minute. Do me a favor and just take a deep breath. Just take a deep breath. Jesus referred to the kingdom that he represents over 200 times in the gospel. His kingdom would be an inside-out, upside-down kind of kingdom. His ways higher than ours, his plans greater than ours. And in his kingdom, he would invite us to be citizens. Citizens of a new kingdom. 
the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Our citizenship would be bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus that makes us righteous before God Almighty. In this room today, if you, if you are not a believer in Jesus, I think this is your opportunity with your eyes closed and as you reflect, I think there's an invitation for you to believe in the King of Kings. Jesus Christ, who would not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but would pour himself out and would atone for the sins of the entire world that you might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that you might be made right with God again. And if that's you, I wanna invite you to pray. Just, just admit, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short. I admit, I believe, I take hold of the truth that is in God's word that you are the son of God. That when you died and were crucified, it counted for me. Just tell him in your own words, I believe. And just say, Jesus, I'm yours. I don't have all the details. I certainly have my, my, my doubts that I'm bringing along with it, but I believe. For others of you as, as members of this kingdom of God, we be challenged today to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because if anything is before him and above him, that is your functional God. That is your functional king. And yet Jesus would reveal in this context that he is the only king. In this kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. In this kingdom, there is no room for hate or discrimination for all who are a part of it are one he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between us. In this kingdom, our hope and our faith would not be swayed by our circumstances, but would instead remain steady on him who is the firm foundation. In this kingdom, there would be an invitation not just to believe truth, but to know truth, to know Jesus. Jesus, this morning we ask, where have we, where have we missed you? Where have we read into the things that you do, the words that you say, too much? And instead of letting the king have the last word, and, and, and instead of letting the king's actions speak for themselves, we try to play king, we try to play ruler, we try to play God. Where have we missed it, God? pray the words of Paul from the book of Ephesians. Guys, the eyes of our heart be enlightened. Wake us up with the spirit of wisdom and revelation speak to us this morning. Remember the words of Philippians that say, think about the things that are noble and true and trustworthy and right and upright. We think about those things and there we find Jesus. And we think and we meditate and we reflect on him. Finally, we remember the words of Jesus this morning when he says, come to me. Because it is only there where our vision and our sight and our ability to see him right will be restored. Jesus, help us see you rightly. Psalm 145 says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. 
His greatness, no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. Let me say that again. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people, somebody say all people, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all of his promises and faithful in all that he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food for the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and he saves them. The Lord watches over all who love them, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Say, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his name, both now and forever and ever and ever. Can we stand and worship Jesus rightly for who he is this morning? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the only one who is able to save. Amen. Amen.